Cheryl Nietzsche recounts the moments right before she was shot by a man wanted for three murders and the attempted capital murder of a sheriff's deputy. Never saw it coming. It was a total ambush attack. He aimed the bullet, the, the barrel of the gun, and the bullet, if you will, toward my left temple. I had read the first line of that note and brought my head up. So all of a sudden, I hear, BOOM! Didn't realize I'd been shot, but the bullet went in by my left ear, by the TMJ joint. It shot the TMJ joint out, raced down through my mouth, and lodged in my neck on the right side about an eighth of an inch from my carotid artery. Welcome to Game of Crimes. You're, I mean, you're a cop 24-7. I mean, you've got the powers of arrest 24-7. Absolutely. You've taken an oath to serve and protect. I remember when I was a rookie, um, there was a violent domestic happening in Ronco County where I was living at the time. You know, I didn't just keep walking because I'm not working. You had to carry your badge, your ID, your weapon with you. Um, that's changed a little bit now, um, as I understand it. But back in the day when I was a police officer, absolutely 24-7, the only time you did not carry that weapon with you is if you were out and you were going to be having an alcoholic beverage or two. Or having sexual relations with a bunny. <laughs> you know, all I can think of is going to court and having some smart-ass Commonwealth you know, or district attorney going, Your Honor, we'd like to dismiss the case. Clearly, the evidence will not stand up in court. You know, even worse, dismissing the case for a lack of evidence. <laughs> Sorry, I digress. Yes, you did. Let's get back to the serious stuff. So you're down there. You show up like about five or six o'clock. So what's your night like? What's the like the temperature? What's going on around there? You know, just give us the scan of the environment. Well, it was late October. It was very cool. I remember I had my body armor on. Um, ironically, during that time, people who shot cops were starting to do headshots. But still, we were supposed to be wearing our bulletproof vests, if you will, our body armor. It was cold. It was clear. I remember all the people coming in and exiting the building. I remember seeing the U-crops and their tuxedos going in for the U of our homecoming. And just, you know, the irony is before I left home that night, you know that weird little guy you get in your stomach that kind of twists your stomach around like something's wrong? And Same you, one that keeps you alive? Yeah. You don't, you don't know what's wrong, but it was like, I did something I never did before. I was like making sure the coffee maker was unplugged. There were no dirty dishes in the sink. Just had a weird feeling like I might not make it home that night. Um, and I had just recently moved in there, but I was just making sure everything was, was okay. And I headed out and headed down to the Marriott and didn't really think much of it again. You know, everything's going along really nice, nice evening. Hi. Are you guys issued handheld radios? You know, how do you maintain contact? I am trying to remember at that time whether we had to sign our radios out and return them. I know I had a radio that night. 
I know I had that, a, a radio that night, and I have my radio. I've got my body armor on. You know, my hair is up off my collar and under my hat. And um, I'm just looking forward to a nice event at the brand-new Richmond Marriott. And the night progressed, and all of a sudden, two men walked up to me, and I remember vividly it, it looked strange that these two men would be together. One was a shorter African-American male wearing a floppy hat, well-groomed, expensively dressed, corduroy jacket, expensive jeans, expensive shoes. And the other man with him was taller, thinner, skin was ashy, looked like he was tired or, or possibly um, had been drinking or, or under the influence of something. He was wearing a royal blue nylon jogging suit with white stripes, with a red stripe down the center of the white stripe on the legs of the jogging suit. And he didn't say anything. But the man wearing the floppy hat was trying to make conversation and had asked me, um, you know, how everything was going, what time I was getting off that evening, you know, what time you get off from work. And I'm like, oh, oh, whenever they tell me I can go home, (laughs) you know, whereas if I had been in street clothes and in a different setting, I would have said, you know, none of your freaking Uh business. But the polite PR way of saying, you know, not interested, you know, leave me alone. So, um, well, what are you doing after work? And I'm like, oh, probably going to get breakfast with my boyfriend. You know, he's just asking you kind of again. Can I get your number? Can I get your number? Well, I was waiting for that, but I was like, you know, oh, God, I'm so done. Okay. I'm like, look, guys, I'd really love to talk to you. However, why don't you just go in, enjoy the evening? You know, I don't want to get in trouble with my boss, you know. And I watched him walk into the Marriott and just kind of shook my head and rolled my eyes. And I didn't think anything of it. You know, um, just like you got badge bunnies out there. There was a certain group of males that, like, really thought it was cool to, like, have a a woman with a gun, (laughs) you know. Hey, so uh, we know what badge bunnies are. So uh, for our players out there, kind of give us the the polite description of a badge bunny. The badge bunny is... And um, this has nothing to do with the bunny earlier. Nothing to do with the (laughs) furry bunny earlier. (laughs) That's that's kind of a... uh, professional slang that refers to the woman that is obsessed with police officers and police officer boyfriends kind of officer oh thank you i just can't thank you enough and you know oh would you like to come over for dinner and they're just uniform chasers yeah they're just obsessed with male police officers and then there's also men who think it would be cool to, hey, how cool would it be to hook up with the cop who's a woman and have her handcuff me and do all sorts of stuff to me? Oh, look, I don't know how many times I had guys ask me, like, you know, if I used handcuffs during relationships or anything. And uh, as much as I didn't want to date in the profession, I am here to tell you that I either ended up meeting men that weren't in the profession that all of a sudden wanted to be more of a man than I was, 
and wanted to protect me and was worried about me running through the alleys of Richmond with my gun at night while he was home safe and that I was going to get hurt. Or it was the ones that were like obsessed and drooling over the the thoughts of a woman with handcuffs and a gun and take me down, baby. (laughs) Men, men are such pigs. What can I tell you? Holy cow. That's when you introduce them to your billy club. (laughs) Hey, maybe you'd like a threesome, me, you, and Billy. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Uh, There you go. All right. Now back to our regularly scheduled podcast, because we're getting to the good stuff now. So, um, hey, by the way, as you start telling us, go through the rest of the story, how long were you scheduled for that night? How long was your off-duty assignment? Uh, If I remember correctly, it was about till 1 a.m. It might have been till 2 a.m. So, I mean, you already put eight hours on the street and then you've got another eight hours in an off-duty job. Pretty much. Oh, life is fun. So you're standing out there, you get approached by these guys. So yet now walk us through. So you get approached, this starts, you know, chatting you up, obviously. And, you you know, you kind of tell them, hey, move along, nothing to see here, right? Nicely, of course, yes. Of course. Always, always a lady. So they walk away and this is hmm, maybe somewhere in the neighborhood, 1030-ish. Uh, around 11.20, the guy in the blue jogging suit comes back by himself. I've had no conversation with him. He never said a word when he was with the other man. And he walks up to me and he hands me a folded piece of paper, a note. And he said, here, my friend asked me to give this to you. He wants you to read it. And I remember laughing and going, oh, what did your friend get? Shy all of a sudden, ha, ha, ha. And I put the paper in my pant pocket. I didn't open it up or read it right away. And I watched him walk away. After he was out of sight, maybe three to five minutes later, I take the paper out, figuring it's going to say something like, hey, you know, my name is Gino. Here's my number. Give me a call. Something like that. No. It was a, a long written note. And the first line read, A marriage is social and holy. And I showed it to the woman at the valet parking stand. I said, does this make any sense to you? And I start looking around for the guy in the blue jogging suit. And she goes, I can't even read it. So I look back down and I scan down to the signature and it was signed Nat Turner. You remember Nat Turner from history? Mm -hmm. And again, I read the first line. A marriage is social and holy. I did not read the whole note. During that time, the man in the blue jogging suit, later identified as Kenneth Wayne Woodfin, had scaled back around the building. And remember where I told you there had been like a utility closet that the fire department had been checking earlier? He, He came in that little cut in. And never saw it coming. It was a total ambush attack. He aimed the bullet, the the barrel of the gun, and the bullet, if you will, toward my left temple. I had read the first line of that note and brought my head up. So all of a sudden, I hear, BOOM! Didn't realize I'd been shot, but the bullet went in by my left ear. By the TMJ joint, it shot the TMJ joint out, raced down through my mouth, and lodged in my neck on the right side about an eighth of an inch from my carotid artery. 
Cheryl, let's let's walk people through this because the TMG is the temporal mandibular joint. So that's kind of what helps connect your jaw to the your your skull and allows you to move your jaw up and down. And so kind of at the angle you're talking about is that that was kind of rather than like a left to right direct shot, that looked like it was kind of a downward angle, like the gun was pointed up and like down towards your shoulder, or did it go into your neck because it hit bone and everything and deflected? I'm not really sure he was taller than me so he could have been aiming for my temple and when I moved my head up it was still angled for the temple from a higher perspective so yeah the TMJ connects both your jaws and everything it shot that out it went down it broke my jaw and lodged an eighth of an inch from my carotid any idea how close the barrel the gun was to your head I was told approximately three to five feet away. Did you have powder burns on your skin? Couldn't tell you. So when you heard that, when you heard that boom, did you know at that point that you had been shot? No. What? Because, you know, this is, this is an interesting, and I say interesting only from a purely professional point of view, because um, we've got an interview that we did with Claudia Apolinar, who is the L.A. Sheriff's County deputy who was shot. We've got one that we just did with Alex Collins, uh, San, uh, San Bernardino County Sheriff's deputy who was shot by Chris Dorner. And a lot of them basically say the same. They didn't feel any pain at first. I think it was the shock. So is that kind of what it was for you is kind of like the, the shock? And you didn't, you didn't feel any pain at that time? Nothing? You just heard the concussion? You just heard the sound? That's it. I never lost consciousness. Let me tell you, I heard this big bang, and the first thing I thought was, oh, my God, the problem with the utility closet that the fire department was here on earlier, something must have blown up. I remember looking out at East Broad Street and my vision going blurry, and it looked like somebody was dumping a gallon of red paint over this blurry picture of East Broad Street. It was just dripping down this blurry picture, and everything went red. I remember getting on my knees and and getting down because I felt weak and laying down on the brick. I heard people screaming, yelling, running. I had no idea what was going on. I remember a man that I don't know who he is to this day. He came up He was doing first aid on me. He put me into a recovery position on my side. He was doing direct pressure on the bleeding wounds. And he picked up my police radio and said, you know, you have a police officer shot at the Marriott. I need an ambulance right away. And it it was like a matter, it seemed like seconds, but almost immediately. Um, There were sirens and police ambulance got there and the man disappeared. I never got an opportunity to see him, to thank him, uh, anything. I remember a lot of confusion. I remember being in the back of the ambulance. And that's when I got my vision back. And I saw my sergeant, Sergeant Dave Andrews, and... He looked like he'd seen a ghost. I'd never seen a look like this on his face before. People say I talk a lot, even with a bullet in my throat. Man, I could still rasp out some some language. I was like, what happened? He goes, you got shot in the head. And I looked at him and I said, no shit, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, I was in shock. 
so Cheryl, when your sergeant leaned down into you and said, "Hey, you've been shot," and you go, like you said, you go, "No shit, I was." Was did it actually register though with you at that point that you had been shot, or could you still not believe that it had happened? No, I wasn't feeling any intense pain. Um, to this day, I have nerve damage in the left side of my face. It's it's kind of funny. When I did go back to work, as somebody went to take a swing at me, I always turned the left side of my face because I wouldn't feel it. <laughs> and then I could kind of haul around and bring them down with my right side. Hey, you know, you could always win those contests, you know, drinking contests where he slapped me as hard as you can. You hit my left side, you know, yeah. you could have made a bunch of money. <laughs> See, here we are helping you with your retirement plan. Anyway, let's go back to that, though. Anyway, yeah, so he's looking at me, and I'm like, you know, Sarge, what happened? You got shot in the head. I'm like, no shit, huh? Next thing I know, you know, the EMTs, paramedics are getting in, um, doing what they got to do so we can go mobile down to the then MCV hospital. I get down to MCV. Oh, my God. What's MCV? Um, MCV is now the big VCU hospital. It used to be MCV, Medical College of Virginia. Okay. They're wheeling me into the ER. There's my coworkers, uniform, non-uniform, people had been called out from home. Um, and and everybody's lined up and they're wheeling me in and they're giving me the thumbs up and I remember being in the emergency room and and talking to the detective and giving him the description of the last person that I spoke to before I thought I was going to die and the encounter with these two guys. And they're asking me, you know, is there anybody that you can think of that would have wanted you dead, that would have, you know, shot you? And I'm like, no, you know. Had anybody made the connection yet? I mean, uh Obviously, you're looking for Woodfin, but had his name come up yet uh, by the time you were at MCV, you know, at the hospital? Was there any connection to know at that time that it was Woodfin or did that come later? I do believe that they suspected, but they hadn't made the connection. But they were later able to make that connection. Um, They rushed me into surgery and they removed the bullet out of my neck. That was key piece of evidence later on in the trial, that bullet that came out of my neck matched the bullets in everybody else, in Bubba Washam, in the homicide victims. Um, so it was the same weapon that was used. What weapon was that? Uh, it was a 357 Magnum, but he had used 38 caliber loads. Well, you hate to say you know, well, fortunately, he used 38 caliber right. loads because if he had used 357 loads, you know, in a 357, this outcome could have been different. Well, all kidding aside, the outcome as close as he shot me should have been different. I remember being in ICU. I had no concept of time. Uh, I was on life support. And I vividly remember getting rushed down to the OR again because apparently the bullet had shattered my skull and I had fragments of lead that had stopped on the outer cortex of my brain. It caused my head to swell up with spinal fluid and they had to rush me down. They had to do a craniotomy. Um, They had to put drains in everything. Now I'm back up in ICU on life support. 
obviously heavily medicated and out of it. But I remember, and this is something I found interesting, you think you're on life support or when you're unconscious. This is something important for everybody to remember. People can hear you. They just cannot respond. That doctor was telling a group of interns, student interns, this was reportedly Saturday, if she makes it through the night, she's home free. But this is why I think we're going to lose her. And he started to medically explain to them what the complications, the implications were, and why he thought I was going to die. And you're listening to all this. I'm listening to all that. And shortly thereafter, I remember it it looked like I was in a pitch black sky or a tunnel. And you know how they say you see that white blinding light before you die? There was a hole and the light was blinding. It was pure white. And I was felt like I was floating toward that blinding light. And I was trying to like get away from it. I was trying to back paddle back. And right about that time, my mom had just gotten there from Boston and she had come through the doors of ICU. And I don't know if I sensed her presence or what, but I regained consciousness long enough to write on a yellow legal pad because I had tubes in my mouth, down my throat, and my nose, and my ear, everywhere. Places I didn't even have places to have tubes. And I remember writing, please don't let me fall asleep. The doctor says I'm going to die. I'm only 24. I don't want to die. My mom got the doctor and got him to come back in and tell me I was going to be okay and all this. But at this point, I'd heard it. I was not believing that doctor. But that's about the time I realized what had happened and my fight to live really kicked in. And I was like, hell no, I'm 24. I ain't going nowhere. Screw this. I am not checking out. I beat the odds all my life. The doctor's going to be wrong, too. And I am going back to work. Ironically, I remember, um, you know, this was my commitment to my job. I was supposed to work the Stonewall Cafe security on Saturday evening. And I remember before they took me into surgery, telling um, one of my coworkers, man, make sure you notify Lieutenant Pleasance. Let him know I got shot and I won't be going to work tomorrow. Make sure so the shift is covered. No offense, Cheryl, by that point, I think the lieutenant knew you had been shot. (laughs) I know, but I don't think I was kind of getting it yet. You know, I just knew I wasn't going to be at work. You know, Um, but yeah, they kind of. Still tease me about that a little bit, you know. Yeah, you mean like I'm forgetting to open up your camera cover so we can see you when we started this podcast? <laughs> I'm not saying anything there. I'm, not that I've ever done that, but maybe. <laughs> oh, that was funny. Just quick aside when we were getting ready to show, I got a problem with my camera, got a problem with my camera. Finally, we had to re- restart the browser, come back in. I said, do you have a camera cover? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've been I've been typing all weekend. It's end of the month reports, you yeah. know that sort of stuff. I know so. you never can get away from paperwork, can you? Yeah, no, everything has paperwork. 
Yeah. So, so tell us, you, you know, they wheel you into surgery. How, just describe for us your hospital stay. What goes on? You go in for surgery, you come back out. Um, did they put you in a medically induced coma or, you know, what was the situation after surgery? Um, after surgery, I knew that I was put on life support and I knew that they had given me morphine. So whether I was medically induced or otherwise, I'm really not quite sure. The other thing being, then they had to rush me down for the emergency surgery when my head swelled up with the spinal fluid and they had to do the craniotomy. Um, that was totally unexpected on, on all levels. I mean, they didn't even realize it had shattered my skull. So, you know, a lot of my friends still call me leadhead and I tell them it's better than deadhead. Absolutely. <laughs> had to carry a letter for a long time if I uh, flew because I would always set off the metal detectors at the airport. There is a story. That there's one you don't get. Hey, sorry, I have to it's the play in my head. You know, the upside is, or the downside is, I got to get scandal time. The upside is, I get great reception on my cell phone. <laughs> your television, if you touch the antenna. <laughs> Here, let me hold your television and improve your reception. Ironically, my doctors called me Miracle Girl. They did not expect me to live. Yeah, but you know something, that this is a lesson then for the medical professionals or the people out there, and it's, you're exactly right. You know, don't tell people, Steve and I just had this discussion on the previous podcast with Claudia. It's like, there have been times where cops have talked themselves into dying from wounds that were not fatal because of their self-talk inside here. But the last thing you want to hear is somebody rolling up on the scene going, ah, this guy's toast. Let's head back to the station. You know, you, you don't want to hear that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I teach CPR first aid on the side. Um, that's kind of my way of paying it forward because if this man hadn't known what to do and performed the correct first aid on me that night, I mean, he was a critical component in controlling the bleeding and, and calling for help and, and a key component to my survival. But I always tell people that you comfort and reassure the victim. You know, you're not qualified to make a diagnosis, even if you are. You don't tell them anything other than they're going to be okay, and that's going to help keep you calm. Watch your facial expression. On the flip side of that, there was an officer in Florida that had gotten shot not terribly long after me, and he was shot like in the arm. It was like a reportedly a treat and release wound. It went in one side, out the other, not hitting any veins or anything. And he died. And I think that's the one I was thinking of when you said that, because that, that was one of the ones they talked to us about, is about how you can talk yourself into dying. And it's all about, you see, you said the same thing Claudia said, Alex said, you know, even Kevin, um, your partner, um, Murph, you know, said, it's that will to survive. It's like, no, to, not today. Maybe some, in, but not today. Yeah, it's, you know what, and that, and that man, it's a shame that, that that man, you were not able to identify him that helped you out initially there right after you'd been shot, because that's like a guardian angel. And I know, you, you know you'd you love to pay the respect and, and the, give him the thanks that, that he's due. But I do have one question. So after all this is over, did you go tune up that doctor that you heard when you thought he thought you couldn't hear him? I know you did. Come on, Cheryl, tell me you did. <laughs> I've only hit one doctor. Here we go with the caveats. I've only hit one doctor. Not, not that particular doctor. You know, he came in and told me, oh, no, we were talking about another patient. You got to call bullshit sometimes. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, bullshit. There you go. I said, you know, I may have gotten shot, but I'm not stupid. 
I heard you. And by the way, that's, you know, in law enforcement, that's a technical term we there. We call bullshit on things. <laughs> bullshit. Indication of your veracity there, Mr. Witness. So, but let, let's kind of, we look, trust me, there are 10 different directions we could go with this, but we want to stay focused on your recovery. So you're in the hospital. Walk us through, you got that craniotomy. Now they put the plate. What happens after that? How long do you stay in ICU? Do you stay in the hospital? What other things do you go through? Okay, so I get shot on a Friday night. They do the craniotomy and everything on the Saturday. On Sunday, I believe it was Sunday or no, maybe Monday morning. I still remember this doctor and his name, but I will be nice and leave it out of it. They take me down to the OR, and they're going to replace the tubes in my nose, the feeding tubes, if you will, the ox. I don't think it was oxygen. They're putting some tubes down my nose into my throat. And I was sedated, but I was conscious. Now, picture this, you know, probably down to about 100 pounds, 99 pounds again, okay? I had to gain weight to get on the PD up to 105 for my weight. You know, head shaved, um, jaws wired. I mean, I'm a mess. And they take the old tubes out, and he's going to put new feeding tubes in. And one of the interns tells him, you know, we don't have the right size. And he's like, don't worry about it. We'll make them fit. And he starts trying to cram these tubes down my nose into my throat. Oh, jeez. Well, I'm here to tell you proudly, I reached up, I grabbed his neck with both hands and started to choke <laughs> the living shit out of this doctor. It took six interns to hold me down. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't reach up and grab something else that would have got his attention. Uh... That was probably too low and too small. <laughs> <laughs> Bazinga. There you go, Doc. You've been slammed, whoever you are, if you're listening to this. There you go, man. Needless to say, I didn't get those tubes reinserted. They brought me back to my room. Uh, my mom gets there. I tell her what happened. I said, I don't want him near me again. I don't trust him. I don't like him. He was told they were too big. He tried to force them. You know, my mom, nope, Good got him her. taken right off the case. She put in a formal complaint, everything. They came in and talked to me about it. So now I'm in and out of consciousness. And um, that Monday, which would have been the 29th of October, they moved me down to med surge. I'm still heavily sedated. I don't even realize I've been moved down to a med surge floor. Well, if, and those things were called NG tubes. This is the same discussion we had with Claudia. You know, they, they go through your nose down into your stomach so they can deliver medication and food. So because your jaw's wired, how are you, how are you getting calories? How are you getting sustenance at this time? We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Let me, let me just tell you about my transition okay. down to the med surge unit. So I don't even realize I'm not nice to you anymore. It's nighttime. It's dark out. There's one window to my left. They have, you know, those tables that they put over your hospital bed so you can sit up and eat? They have a table on each side of the bed, the right side, the front of the bed, and the left side. Well, you can't get flowers when you're in ICU. So these three tables are loaded with flowers. And I wake up, 
and there's a little crack in the in the drapery, so there's just a little bit of light coming in from the outside, and it's dark out now. And I remember thinking oh, I was in the funeral home. <laughs> oh, Jim. I'm like I'm like pinching my arm, and and I remember go oh oh oh. <laughs> I thought I was dead, and I was in the funeral home because of the huge amount of flowers around where I was lying. Well, damn, that's like that's like you being in the morgue there, walking around. You know, you saved a life. So, you know, you're going, hey, wait a minute, guys, not my time yet, not ready. You know, hello, over here. It it was unbelievable. I couldn't get in or not. Or out of the bed, here I am surrounded by flowers, it's dark, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, I died. So then when I realize I'm not dead, you know, I find the little buzzer and no concept of time again. Apparently I had missed dinner and they forgot to feed me because I was feeling hungry. And, uh, you know, the nurse came in and... I remember, you know, telling her, like, you know, hey, you know, when did they move me down here? And, you know, what do you mean I can't get up to go to the bathroom? And, you know, I still, it wasn't connecting that I still had all these IVs and stuff in me. And, well, they had forgotten to feed me, and apparently the kitchen was closed. I think it was relatively late, because this nurse felt so bad that she gave me her can of Campbell's soup that she had brought in for the overnight shift for dinner. And I had that through a straw. And pretty much that's how I ate was pureed food through a straw. I remember spending, oh golly, maybe another six or seven days in the hospital. I think I was in the hospital maybe 10, 10, 11 days. Uh, If my memory serves me correctly, I was in ICU four days, med surge about six. And I remember them telling me I was going to be able to go home and bringing the wheelchair up, and I'm like, save that wheelchair for somebody who needs it. I was rolled in. I am walking out. We got into a discussion about that because they made me ride in the wheelchair because of liability, and I didn't want to. And, you know, it's like, damn, will you, will you let me have some control over what's going on here? I want to walk. Well, you did. You choked a doctor out. You had a lot of control. Come here, you son of a bitch. I'm not finished choking your ass. <laughs> Were there were there police officers around the whole time you're in the hospital? Um, until Woodfin reportedly turned himself in. Let me let me roll back to that a little. It was kind of funny because I wasn't allowed to have any visitors except for immediate family when I was in ICU, and the nurses were teasing me, going, "Wow, you have a really big family, very diverse culturally as well. Lots of brothers and sisters of all yeah. races, ages, yeah." Yeah, they were all coming in, and, you know, some of them I knew were there. Most of them I did not know were there. Oh, they had um, police guarding the doors if I was in surgery outside of ICU. They had extra police assigned to MCV because they thought that Woodfin might show up to finish what he had started. And, you know, the only good witness is a dead one. So they were actually expecting that he would show back up at the hospital. Yeah, there were police guards 24-7 on me. Um, my mom, you know, she had police escorts back and forth to the hospital. The police department, especially Sergeant Haywood, took excellent care of my mom. My close friends looked out for my mom. Come Saturday, 
after they made the connection of Woodfin being the one who had shot me, they had police snipers on top of the precincts. All the offices were riding um, double duty, two offices to a car. I was told later that there were, like, very few people out, and everybody was riding shotgun, which is what we called it. Multiple departments, all the departments, because in that note he had given me, it was a direct threat toward the life of his brother-in-law and his wife. Remember, his brother-in-law was a sergeant on the police department, and reportedly, he was supposed to have been working at the Marriott that night. So he was down there probably looking for Sergeant Boshin. And when he didn't see him, he decided to deliver the message through me. Because I do remember them saying that they had units on the way over to get Boshin and his wife and get them out of their home in Chesterfield, because they also thought that might be where Woodfin was headed. So there was some probable connection from Woodfin based on that letter. But everything really got wrapped up, as I understand it, after they got the bullet out. And so, so walk us through, at what point was Woodfin in custody? Was that during your time while you were in the hospital, you said? Yes. They also recovered the jogging suit and the weapon at what is now the Ronald McDonald House. It used to be the Downtowner, which was a hotel uh, right by where you can get on to the... Uh, I think it's 7th and Marshall, right by where you can go to get on the interstate. They got the jogging suit and the weapon back that night. And while I'm in the hospital, I was told that it was that Saturday. He had contacted a friend of his who was a lieutenant on the Petersburg Police Department. This lieutenant didn't tell anybody he was contacted by Woodfin. He made arrangements to go and meet Woodfin at an undisclosed location, and Woodfin turned himself in to this Petersburg Police Department lieutenant. Why? Unbelievable. Well, let's let's back up before I go off the rails, too, like with Murph here. So did this guy do it because he was trying to be the hero and bring the guy in? Did he do it because he was being stupid? I mean, here's somebody who shot two cops already, tried to kill both of them, already killed three people. Why do you go after somebody like this and not tell anybody what you're doing? That is a question that for years I have wanted to ask this lieutenant, but I'm not even sure of what their relationship was. I mean, you're a cop. You're a cop first. His department held him accountable from what I understand. You, common sense would tell you you don't do that. You know, I don't care if it was my, my biological brother or my very best friend, or my next-door neighbor, if they had done the things that Woodfin was wanted for doing, there is no way I would meet them at an undisclosed location, not tell anybody um, to make them comfortable in bringing them in. How would I, why would I not think that they would might Maybe try to kill me, too. Become the sixth victim. You've got three dead, two wounded. What makes you sure that you're not going to be number six? Right, because we're friends. <laughs> right. Right. Well, he already killed his best friend. The, the, the sister 
Well, sister-in-law's... His sister-in-law's boyfriend, yeah. And in the manifesto, basically what he put out, you know, he wanted to kill the sergeant. He had already shot the deputy in the other county up in... Han was it Hanover County, and he was, Yeah, and he was blaming the police for his marriage breaking up. I learned this a long time ago. You know, you shoot a cop, you're bought and paid for. There, I mean, there. if you shoot an armed officer, you will shoot an unarmed civilian, which he obviously did. And so... I'm flummoxed by this. I'm flummoxed why this guy would think that he needs to bring him in other than either to be a glory hound and he wants to get all the credit for himself. But when you said the department handled it, do you know what they did with this guy? Um, I just, from what I was told, he was admonished um, by his superiors. But here's another interesting piece, and I will let you read between the lines. During that time... Um, Petersburg police were setting up on the mother's house, which was in Blanford, surveilling it, thinking, you know, Woodfin might go to his mom's. And they pulled Petersburg off and brought in the state police, from what I was told. Back during this time, there was reportedly a lot of questionable things going on within the department and this being a prime example. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it, it really sounds like there's, you know, not to, you know, everybody's a Monday morning quarterback, right? But you sit back and look at it and that's just, that's wrong. <laughs> that's absolutely wrong. Ironically, while I was out recovering, I was only out on workers comp for about six months. I received a phone call from somebody who was a detective, reportedly with the Petersburg Police Department in one of their specialized units, who wanted to meet me to discuss the relationship between the Richmond Police Department and the Petersburg Police Department. Apparently, they were having some issues working together on some investigations. They wanted to meet me at this little, not one of the upscale bars, during the afternoon to discuss their concerns with me. Let me wipe stupid off my forehead, right? Number one, I'm not the public relations representative for Richmond Police. Number two, you know, what do you really want? So basically, I was like, oh, let me check my schedule, you know, let me, um, give me a call back. I called a couple of my close friends that worked the same unit as this guy, and I said, you know, look, let's find out what this guy really wants. If I go meet him, like, will you guys be in the booth, you know, behind me? And they were like, NFW, you're not going. You probably won't make it in that bar alive. It does sound like a hit. It sounds like he's setting up for a hit. Anyway, he called back, and I said, look, Here's the deal. If you really want to meet with me, we can meet down at police headquarters. I'll secure a conference room. But I really don't see how I'm going to be able to help you at all because I don't work in that unit. I don't work with that unit. And I have nothing to do with public relations. What do you really want? And on top of that, you, you got about three years on the job, right? Um, at this point, yeah. Yeah. So, I, you, know, you know, nothing against patrolmen, but that's not a decision-making position when it comes to politics like that. 
Right. I, I was a patrol officer. I was working task force, special operations, right. but nothing to do with this guy's specialized unit. Right. By the way, earlier when you said NFW, that's a technical cop term as well. That means no fucking way. You know, <laughs> Correct. that is not happening. So let's go back now. Let's let's put a pin in that. We'll we'll discuss that a little bit more. But the the issue is, let's talk about Woodfin now uh, turning quote turning himself in. When did you first know that Woodfin was in custody? Uh, I would like to say probably that Monday, that Sunday, that Monday. But I don't think it registered until that Tuesday. Willard Bubba Warsham was also in the hospital, and he came down and introduced himself, and we sat there and had a chat. And, of course, you know, people were coming in, able to come in and see me, and were coming in to see me. This was a funny sideline. There was an attorney I knew from court, just from court, but he came in to visit me because he did a lot of public defender work. And he didn't want to be assigned to represent Woodfin, so he could, he could... He came in and created a conflict of interest so he could conflict himself out. Yes. <laughs> Fast forward years later, he, um, I introduced him to my best friend, and she ended up marrying him, and they're happily married all these years later. Oh, nice. Very nice. So, yeah, but it, it, it's always been a big joke. He's like, yeah, I walked in. I know you don't know who the hell I am, but I just want to let you know I'm really concerned. You might recognize me from court. Here, here's a couple of my business cards. <laughs> and by the way, give me a dollar. This is something I learned off of watching um, uh, Better Call Saul, right? He's a, just just give me a dollar. You know, just give me something so we can create that attorney-client relationship and stuff. So create that relationship, and I can say, sorry. Now, there's a defense attorney I can respect. Somebody comes in and says, look, I defend a lot of people. I just don't want to defend this guy. Well, Woodfin decided he wanted to represent himself in court. Great. Well, hold on before we get to that, Cheryl. Let's go back and just finish up that piece. So talking about uh, you found out, how did you find out that he was in custody? Who, who finally told you? Everybody. Okay. Everybody. They may have told me on Saturday, but Saturday I was still on life support and in and out of it. And so how long after your shooting did Widfin, quote, turn himself in? Was that like two days, one day afterwards? From what I understand, it was sometime during the day that Saturday. So like the next day. OK, but I don't know that, like I said, to be definite because. Well, don't worry, you're not under oath here. We're not going to cross examine you. Oh, and the con concept of time, like I said, was totally gone. So um, you get out, but like you say, you're out. And how long is your rehab? What, 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 what do you have to do for your rehab? Because you've been shot in the face, you've been shot through the jaw. So talking, moving, you know, eating and stuff, that's all got to be just excruciating stuff to go through. Well, you will laugh. I could talk. I could talk just as much as I can now. Um, that was the biggest thing with the tubes down my throat and everything, man. I couldn't talk. So I went home. I'll never forget that Thanksgiving. I had so much to be thankful for, but I wanted to eat. And my jaw was still wired. My jaw still broke. Picture turkey, gravy, gravy, stuffing, mashed potatoes, cranberry sauce, everything in the blender, and trying to drink this brown fluid. Uh, okay. It was nasty <laughs> as what it looked like, okay? Um, I was able to eat baby food. Let me tell you, I would never want to be a baby again. 
those those meat dinners with mixed vegetables, nasty. <laughs> I, I I like the baby food, bananas, and some of the veggies were okay, but everything was soft and pretty much through a straw. Once they unwired, unconnected my jaw, I could eat soft foods. So it was a long recovery process. Had the hearing impairment. Can't be corrected. I have an ear on the outside, but obviously on the inside, it's destroyed. Nine levels of hearing. I regained a little bit in three of the levels, a little more in the other three levels, and the other three levels are totally gone. But I will tell you, um, there's always a positive in the negative, because I tell people, you know, I have a hearing impairment. If I don't acknowledge you, I didn't hear you. So I hope my boss isn't listening in on this. There'll be times he tells me to do stuff, and I just (laughs) keep going. And then he'll go, hey, did you get that done yet? I'm like, what? He's like, I told you to do, you know. I'll be like, did I answer you? I must not have heard you. I'm so sorry. And and you know, I don't have hearing in this ear here. So I just, you know, unless you put it in writing several times and send it to me certified mail, you know, I'm yeah. not going to get it. I'm sorry. Just, you know, you know how it works. Um, I, I will tell you, I tell everybody, you got to yell at me. If I talk loud, I'm not yelling at you. I just, you know, I have a hearing impairment. You know, I have the positional vertigo as as far as um, I had the positional vertigo. You know, I couldn't climb on anything. I would get dizzy in that. Um, but that pretty much leveled out. I kept my hair long for a long time, and I was very self-conscious of my neck scar but after a while I cut the hair short and I said why why am I covering that up man that's that's my medal of survivorship yep it's your battle scar yeah it's a part of me good attitude good attitude my teeth all had to be capped and crowned and extensive dental work back in 2015 It took me and my attorney a few years to duke it out with the city because my the little shrouds of teeth that were left under the caps, crowns, and bridges had all rotted out. Because when you have caps and crowns, coffee and things get in over the years, and the little shrouds of shaven teeth that were left um, had deteriorated. So I wanted to get implants. And the city had told me that, you know, any of my medical costs associated with this injury would be covered for the rest of my life. And ironically, when Officer Bill Turner got shot on a Friday in 2015, January 2015, that following Thursday, I was supposed to go to the Workers' Comp Commission against the city of Richmond to fight for my teeth. And uh, we had a prayer vigil for him. Richmond United for Law Enforcement was formed. We held a prayer vigil for him that Sunday. And on that Monday, my lawyer reportedly got a call from the city attorney saying, gee, was that Cheryl Nietzsche we saw on the news last night holding the prayer vigil for Officer Bill Turner, the same one that we're going to court with? On Thursday, and he said, the one and only. And she was like, well, I don't know why this is even going to court. Uh, hmm. You know, and anyway, they decided to do the right thing and cover my dental implants, and we didn't have to go to work as comp. 
But um, so now I have all implants. Well, combined with the plate, you should get tremendous reception then on your cell phone. I'm just telling you, you sound good. I don't have a plate in my head. I just have the scrap metal still on the outer cortex. Yeah. Good enough for government work, you know, so you got the bright, shiny smile and the great reception. But let's go back and talk now about post-event, because at some point this goes to court. Like you say, Woodfin's now wants to represent himself, and he has got just a fucking marvelous defense for why it couldn't have been him that he still maintains to this day. But let's talk about the trial, getting prepped for the trial. How did that, tell us, walk us through that. How did that get set up? You know, and when did you actually go to trial after the shooting? The judge did require him to have two court-appointed attorneys, whether he wanted their help or not. He was going to have two attorneys appointed to assist him. And One of them was a former Commonwealth attorney. Both of them were great attorneys. So we show up for the preliminary hearing in December. I believe it was December 3rd or December 6th. And they're going to be, you know, just certifying the case to circuit court. And they wanted to try my case first because there was an eyewitness in my case who saw Woodfin shoot me was able to identify him. They had retrieved the weapon, the clothes he was wearing, the bullet that matched everything. Because, of course, in the homicides, there were no eyewitnesses. They needed the conviction in my case to get the conviction in the other cases. So I walk into court, and, you know, the detectives and the Commonwealth attorney are there, and they're with some close friends. And all of a sudden, the Commonwealth attorney stands up and makes a motion to reduce the charge from attempt capital murder to malicious wounding. To say I was shocked and angry is probably an understatement. I was so tempted to stand up and and say, you know what? What the fuck? Let's just, like, reduce it to simple assault and be done with it today. I mean, the guy just shot me in the fucking head and tried to kill me. What in the world? So the motion was granted. The case was certified. And I remember talking to the detective sergeant, the detective, and the Commonwealth attorney outside of the courtroom afterward and going, what the fuck just happened? This guy tried to kill me. Why, why are you reducing the charge? You know, what's going on? And that's when they explained that, you know, my case needed to be heard first. I was going to have to testify at every single trial and that we needed to make sure we had a conviction to be able to try and convict in the other cases. We had to make sure we had a conviction in my case. And I'm like, what the fuck? You couldn't have told me this ahead of time? You know, professional courtesy You could have prepared me? That's the worst part. Do you not realize that, like, I was just shot in the head. I was ambush attacked a couple of weeks ago. I mean, less than two months ago. We're talking I got shot on October 26th, and we're we're talking this is like December 6th. How did they explain that? Just what I said, that they needed to have a conviction and that I was right. They apologized. They should have thought to tell me first. Oh, no shit. You're just the victim. That's <laughs> all. Don't worry. You're just the victim. We don't need to run these things by you. So here's a guy, had it not been for the fact is that your head was moving because you were reading the note that this guy gave you, you would have probably taken it through the temple. We wouldn't have been having this podcast. 
And somehow that's the equivalent of reducing first degree murder down to improper parking. You know, when you talk about malicious wounding, malicious wounding is like, didn't really mean to kill you, just sort of did it. The gun went off by itself. You know, what was I thinking? And it just, I'm sorry, you know, again, we just call bullshit out when we see it. And it's like, you've just tried to kill a cop. You just tried to kill a second cop, I should say. You've already killed three people. And yet they can't think that this, that a jury would not sit there and go, you know, you can introduce it prior bad acts. This guy, he's got a pattern of doing this. He shot and killed three, shot and wounded a deputy. And in your case, what what makes them think that he wasn't trying to kill you as opposed to just maliciously wound you? That's the part that just I'm perplexed by. They admitted that he was trying to kill me. I'm like, you know what I feel like? I feel like you're you're blaming me because if my head hadn't been in the way of his bullet, my bad. I was just so angry. I can't even tell you. Understandably, that they couldn't have the professional courtesy to discuss this with you before they just throw this out in open court and there you are in the courtroom. Unfreaking believable. And reportedly, the detectives didn't know this was coming either. And I believe them, both of them. I had a very positive, good working relationship with um, prior to this happening, and they were there for me round the clock. They were pretty angry, too. This was the Commonwealth Attorney's decision. So in all fairness, I do want to make sure that that comes out, that the detective and the detective sergeant were caught off guard as well. Yeah, that, and that's when the chief should be down there in the prosecuting attorney's office jumping up and down on his freaking desk. Uh, somebody's ass with a big two by four going, yep. you know, not on, not in this case. It just, again, here we go. We could go sideways again on this and it is just. Yes, we could. Uh, We're with uh, you. Well, at the danger of going off the rails, let's get back on the rails somewhat. We're a little wobbly here. That's okay, but we'll stay on the rails. Well, wait a minute. She could she could have gone to the prosecuting attorney's office and wrapped your hands around his throat because you've got experience doing that. Oh yeah, right? no, I wouldn't have done his throat at that point. I would have grabbed the I would have grabbed the boys and just turned him from a chicken to a rooster, from a rooster to a hen. I'm sorry, you know, in just one squeeze, pop, pop, fizz, fizz. And and at that time, I probably could have gotten away with it. It was like. Oh, PTSD. Yeah, I'm still a little bit. It's the medication. It's the morphine. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so they spring this on you. So when is your first day in court? Without looking back at my records, I couldn't give you. Just give us an approximate, like six months later, a year later. How long does it take for this finally thing? It was, it was the following year, winter, spring. Were you back to work yet? No. So was this just a preliminary or was this a, had they, had they gone to trial or is this was going to trial? It was certified and this was the trial. Like I said, they wanted the conviction in my case prior to trying any of the other cases because they wanted to be able to introduce the evidence in my case into the other cases. Well, I was going to say during this time, what was the reaction of the community in Richmond? Oh my God. I would tell you, I worked a lot of off duty, knew a lot of people in the community. I worked special, special operations task force. I was always kind of a people person. If it were not for the support of the community and my brothers and sisters, maybe up to the role of lieutenant, I truly believe, besides the obvious, you know, God, I would not have survived. The community was so supportive. The cards that they were mailing and dropping off to to the precinct, to the um, to to police headquarters, to my precinct where I work, the inquiries about my well-being. I still have wow. all the cards that were sent 
And ironically, I even got a letter from an incarcerated individual that I had arrested telling me how sorry he was to hear that this happened and what a positive impact I had made in his life by arresting him, how he could get the help that he needed with his drug addiction, and that he was praying for my recovery. And Very cool. That, yeah, that was something that just really gripped my heart. Like I said, just the support was beyond belief. My mom stayed with me for about a month afterward. It was kind of funny. I told you I had just moved in, hadn't totally finished unpacking. Well, she didn't like my decor. She she changed things and put up stuff <laughs> I should have on the wall. She threw out all my groceries and bought healthier food and the food I should be eating. I remember <laughs> when I got home, I had to take her out and say, look, look at the name on the door, on the mailbox. Look at the mail. This is my home. If you want to eat different food than what I have, I will buy you anything you need or want. But this is my home. It was it was interesting. Uh, always a mom. Did she ever go, I told you you should have been a secretary? She did something. <laughs> I can laugh about it because you would have to know my mom when she was alive to appreciate this. I remember telling everybody when I got shot, don't tell my parents. Don't tell my parents. Well, they had to tell somebody. So I'm like, tell my mom. Don't tell my dad yet. Let my family take care of that. He'll have he'll have a freaking heart attack and die. My mom, when she heard I was going back to work, medically cleared, and I was going to go back to work, she's like, well, if you insist on going back to that damn job, I bought you a gift. And here I'm thinking, oh, wow, she she bought me a, you know, um, a secondary weapon or, you know, maybe some form of bulletproof hat or <laughs> something, right? I'm like, you did, mom? What did you get me? I bought you a, a cemetery plot in Puritan Lawn Cemetery. So next time when you get shot and you die and they fly your body home, I have somewhere to put it. And I'll be buried with you. I'm like, oh, wow. So does that oh mean I gosh. own real estate? You know, can I build a doghouse on this cemetery plot or what can I do with it? You get to pay taxes on it. Ironically, she's buried there. I still have that plot. And I don't want it. I'm like, oh, my God, she's trying to control my life even after I die. Hey, got to love <laughs> moms. Funny. That was not a good thing to do. Here I am getting ready to go back to work um, and, you know, a little apprehensive about going back. But That's hilarious. Yeah, like I told everybody, if I didn't go back and I let him take away my my lifelong dream, yeah dream and my profession, then he may as well have killed me. That hell no, I was going back. Let's let's talk about the trial then, and then, then we want to get into what you've done, you know, post-life after that. So walk us through the trial. Um, you know, it, it takes place at Certified Descent Trial. What's it like going into the courtroom with the guy who shot you sitting there? Well, especially where he was representing himself, I did ask that he not be allowed out from behind the defense table. There were times he asked me questions where um, he referred to himself as the defendant. And he actually, I'll, I'll say this, he didn't do a bad job. He had his bachelor's before me, very intelligent. But I would respond, you know, he would be like, well, when you first state that you saw the defendant, and I would answer, 
when I first saw you, it was a little unnerving. It, it was it was just a flood of different emotions. I remember asking the judge to keep him behind that table. I did not want him close to me that the last time he was anywhere close to me, he tried to kill me, and I did not feel safe. And did the judge comply? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's that old Daniel Webster saying, I think he said, anybody who represents themselves has a fool for a client. And, uh, you know, even though he had two court-appointed people in there, even if he didn't do a bad, it reminds me of Colin Ferguson, the guy who shot the people on the New York subway. He referred to himself in the third person or, you know, or when you saw Mr. Ferguson, it just shades, shades of this. So how long, how long did the trial last? Too long. I can't even remember exactly. It was a long time, but they, they did a great job. I can't remember if he had to wear shackles or not. I remember he was in street clothes, like he was suited up. You know how long the jury was out? I don't remember. Um, I, again, I have all of that put away. No, that's okay. You know, we're just, because, you know, normally it's a good sign for the prosecution when the jury's back, you know, fairly quickly. It's usually, and it's not always 100% either way, but it's a bad sign when they take, you know, days to do this. So, but it sounds like... It was a relatively quick decision. They, they may have been out the day that the trial ended and the following day. I don't remember exactly, and I don't want to give any incorrect information. Of course not, because you're still under oath, and we might, we might have to bring you back. And yeah. No, I just don't, I, I don't want Woodfin from Nottaway Correctional Center watching this and going, oh, okay, I got something I can dispute now, because he's made several appeals. Well, speaking of his appeals, let's talk about what his brilliant legal fucking defense was. He actually did an interview, one interview, all the time he's been incarcerated with a TV station. And that was not terribly long ago, 2013, maybe 2014. And he claimed that it was not him that shot or killed any of these people because during the time that all these things were happening, he was being tortured in the woods by a group of men. Insinuating what? Did he ever say? He wasn't real specific. He had no motive. He was being tortured. He was in the woods being tortured by like three or four guys. So the same three or four guys were the ones that kidnapped his wife, took her to the cemetery, shot her eight times, got the sister-in-law, got the boyfriend of the sister-in-law, shot the deputy, and then the same three or four guys showed up with him uh, and the Richmond uh, Marriott and shot you. And that's his brilliant legal defense. No, um, actually, those three or four guys were not there. And he states that he was not there because they were all in the woods. And the three or four guys were torturing Woodfin, the guy who was convicted of killing three people and trying to kill two cops. Yeah, regardless of the physical evidence and the fingerprints and the blood and everything else. Yeah, just you got to ignore all of that. Right. And ironically, I guess those guys wouldn't come to court to to testify on his behalf that, no, man, he was with us. We were torturing him for three days. <laughs> that's That's got to be one of the stupidest defenses I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, trust me, there are some brilliant legal scholars out there that think if I defend myself and I just talk about a crazy story, everybody will believe me. So did you have to testify? What? So what was the resolution of the other cases? So you went first 
did you have to testify again? Did he take a plea? What happened afterwards? Obviously, the jury convicted him. He was assigned the maximum sentence. And then, of course, you know, the, the what was it, two years for the use of a firearm and the commission of a felony. And then we moved on to the double homicide. Well, wait a second before we get there. What was the maximum sentence he got for you? Two years for the use of felony. What did he get for the malicious wounding? Um, I believe it was 20, 20 and 2. Hopefully to conserve consecutively. Of course not. All his, no. time, all his time is concurrent. Unbelievable. Again, for folks out there that, you know, you're wondering what's the difference. Consecutive means you serve one sentence, then the next sentence, then the next sentence. But concurrent means you serve, if you get two sentences for 20 years, one's consecutive to the other, you serve 40 years. But if they're concurrent, you serve only one sentence twice for 20 years. And then you're out. And so this guy gets 20 years. It's So all of his sentences are concurrent. Three homicides, wounding of a deputy, wounding of a police officer, and all the sentences are concurrent. Yep. He he got like three life sentences and 116 total additional years, but yet he still comes up for parole. That's crazy. Well, um, let, let's talk about that for a second. So, but let's let's finish this discussion. Did he take a plea or did he have to go to trial on those other charges? Oh, no, he went to trial on all the other charges. He pled not guilty. When it came down to the wife's trial, her, her homicide trial in Petersburg was the very last one. They did not want to have a trial. They said, look, he's got all these years. He's not getting out. You know, why are we going to have a trial? And again, I'm like, oh, hell yes, we're having a trial. That was his wife. That was her life. She deserves to have her day in court. His family, her family, deserves to have that day in court. Her life was taken from her. She was brutally murdered. She was his first victim. We are having a trial. And we did. And we did. What are they were going to do? Just not prosecute him? Just say, look, he's got all these other sentences. There's no need for us. Yeah. Just dismiss the charges. They were going to let it go. Unbelievable. And and uh, again, I threw a hissy fit. I remember it was really uncomfortable, too, because his family was in the courtroom. And after a while, they stopped coming. I think they needed to hear the evidence. You know, family's family no matter what. But after hearing everything that came out. The Richmond cases were tried first. My mom came down for the Hanover County hearing, trial for Bubba shooting, and she couldn't sit with me. She couldn't be seen traveling with me. There was a female and the detective sergeant who investigated the case. They sat with her in court. She was heavily protected. She couldn't go to the ladies' room alone. She couldn't speak to me in court. Um, There had been threats made against my life. Uh, witnesses' lives, everything, um, even even afterward. I can't believe that they would consider dismissing the charge. Yeah, but they did, they did the right thing, and there was a conviction. Apparently, he filed an appeal some years later. Nobody even notified me. One of my media buddies called and said, hey, you coming down to John Marshall? You know, Woodfin's got his appeal in court today. I'm like, what appeal? What? And this is long after I'm... I'm gone from the police department. Nobody even notified me he had appealed the case. Unbelievable. You gotta be. I'm just a victim. Someday I'm going to finish my book. Just the victim. Uh, Well, every other every other county in Virginia has a victims' rights coordinator. 
What's going on in Henrico? They don't have one? Well, this is Richmond City. Oh, and geez. interestingly enough, back then, because I was a police officer, I was not considered a victim back then. Oh. See, and there is the underlying oh. bullshit. We had an officer who was assaulted, injured, you know, it was aggravated battery on a law enforcement officer. And of course, the defense motion normally is to, uh, you know, um, uh, exclude witnesses from the courtroom, you know, to sequester them, which is standard tactics. We get that. They wanted to make him leave. And at least our county attorney got up and said, uh-uh, your honor, victim has a right to be in the courtroom. He's the victim of this. And everybody used to treat police officers, to your point, as second class saying, oh, I'm sorry, you're not a victim. No, you're not the you victim. You shoot me, you, went you shoot me, you stab me, you run over me. Yeah, sure as hell I'm a victim. You, you're a police officer. You entered this profession knowing the risks involved. That was their mentality at the time. But we also fought that, many of us, and, and that got turned around. Well, what is, speaking of the shit show in Loudoun County, apparently there's the shit show in Richmond City. Um, for this going on. But if there's any good news in this, the fact is that he got convicted in all cases, right? Absolutely. However, though, as we know, and we're, I'm, I'm saying this as a caveat to you, Murph and Cheryl, even me, we don't do politics here. But the one issue, the one concern you had, even though he was given this sentence plus 116 years, documented cases of cop killers in Virginia that were released on parole and you, you had a real concern is that a previous parole board may have seen their way f um, fit to release this guy on parole. Abs absolutely. Um, the parole board has never had to notify me after he had served, I believe it was 17 years, he became eligible for parole. Parole wasn't abolished for violent offenders until 1995 under Governor Allen, which meant that Woodfin is eligible for parole. And, you know, did 17 years, and then I started having to go every one to three years to the parole board to keep him incarcerated. Um, I let them know when he was due. What a lot of people don't know is they only have a very small amount of available hearing dates each quarter. The parole board is supposed to notify the victims or their families if the victims are deceased um, of the upcoming parole hearing. Uh, however, the victims are supposed to register with the Vine system, which has currently recently been updated. Um, as I understand it, the parole board is supposed to supposed to attempt to locate and notify the victims and their families. Last year, especially, that wasn't happening. Everybody was doing stuff freestyle, their own way, using COVID-19 or whatever reason. And victims, victims' families were not getting located. They were not being notified. And a huge amount of the worst of the worst offenders were released back into society. Many of the victims and their families did not know. We're talking serious sex offenders, the worst of the worst killers. We're talking about a lady who with her, I think it was daughter and her, the daughter's son, killed this lady's husband, threw his body into a well, covered it up, and then had a party 
in the same damn place six days later with this guy in the well. They got the they got the young son, the son of the uh, the grandson, to go and kill this guy. She did six years, and she got out without notifying the Commonwealth's attorney or the family. Correct. Unbelievable. You know, and notwithstanding COVID, notwithstanding COVID or anything else, it doesn't absol- it doesn't release you from your responsibilities if you're holding that position. Well, there's only so much I can say because I am sure this is not totally over. The former chairperson, Adrian Bennett, was appointed a judge as a judge down in Virginia Beach. She has been on administrative leave. There were several complaints made to the Office of the State Inspector General. Reportedly, those investigations found the parole board in violation of policy, procedure, and state code. Uh, Richmond United for Law Enforcement, we were very involved in providing services for the victims, hooking people up, and doing some, some independent investigating and providing information to the appropriate sources. The parole board, they were releasing a huge amount of people, the worst of the worst. I wish I could tell you more on that. Maybe that's something where I could hook you up with some people another time for another story after everything is completed. Last I heard, um, now Judge Adrian Bennett is on administrative leave. And that's all I can really say right now. But at the end of the day, there needs to be accountability on all levels. And I think both of you will agree with me that the people in the professional law enforcement, yeah, we have bad apples in law enforcement too, but the good apples hate the bad apples worse than anybody because it tarnishes the profession, the integrity, and everything. And I'm here to tell you, The majority of people in law enforcement truly care. They want to make a positive difference. They want to help. And they will hand the bad apples up quicker than anybody. There has to be transparency and accountability. If you want to be a criminal, be a criminal. Don't be a cop. Don't be a prosecutor. Don't be a state, somebody in a state office. Don't be on a parole board and think you have no accountability. And that's something that I truly hope the newly elected officials will make some positive changes and reforms for the parole board, because here is a part of a system that I was always so proud to be a part of that has become the enemy. It's, it's taken up for the criminals, and they're supposed to be unbiased, and victims are supposed to have rights. And and victims' rights were clearly violated in so many cases. Yeah, this just wasn't a one-off. This was a continuous pattern of behavior um, that went on and on and on. And look, you're right. We could do a lot more on this. I don't want to. I don't want to take away from the last part of your story because I think the last part of this really emphasizes where your heart is on this. And look, you just spoke to Merce Hart when you said that about the bad apples. He he routinely says, "What do you always say, Murph?" Nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop, and they should be put under the jail. They should be held more accountable than other criminals. You take on a position of public service, public trust. That's what goes with it. And if you're on the parole board, if you're the governor, if you're a police officer, that you're a public servant, you can't betray the public's trust. 
Yeah. Set the politics aside. It's about let's look at the facts of the case and determine that. Now, are there some people who've gone to prison that become good candidates for parole? Absolutely. That's the purpose of parole. But it amazes me. Somebody who was given three life sentences plus 100 and what did you say, 60 years or 16 years? 16. How do you get 116 years plus three life sentences and still become, if you if he wasn't eligible per, for parole, he wouldn't be having a parole hearing. Now, would he? How do you kill three people and then you're, you're eligible for parole? You don't deserve to get out. What the laws were back then when he got convicted. And like I said, even even if he wasn't eligible for parole under geriatric reform in Virginia, he would still be eligible for parole because they want to get once once the inmates hit about 60, they want to start getting the older inmates out. They become very expensive because health care is the biggest cost center in a jail, in a prison, you know, just taking care of that stuff. Well, hey, look, let's leave that there for a minute, because I want to talk about Let's just real quickly talk about how many more years did you stay on Richmond? And then let's talk about your work on victims' rights and a lot of the stuff you're doing now. I went back approximately six months later. I rode with the supervisor for about six weeks. They wanted to make sure, and I, I needed to know that, you know, I was going to react normally. I was ready to hit the street again. They didn't just throw me back out in a police car. Um, I eased back into it. I was working task force, special operations, rode with the supervisor, who was also a street cop. And ironically, my very last night riding with the supervisor, we got into a shootout. We, we found a suspect. We responded down to a bar fight, and there was no fight when we got there. We cleared the area. We were on the way back in to clock out at 2 a.m., and... I was like, shit, Sarge, he's got a gun. They were behind the business, and one guy had a gun on another guy. And he's like, call it in, Nietzsche. And he's like, drop the gun, drop the gun. Just as I'm getting out of the vehicle after calling it in, telling him to hold the air, asking for additional units, the guy turns around with the gun toward the sergeant, toward the police car, and gunfire is exchanged. Meanwhile. I'm just getting out of the car. I didn't even have time to, you know, do anything. I dive under the car, and I can actually tell you I've had a close and personal intimate relationship with the rear tire of a police unit, okay? <laughs> Are we going to have to collect it for evidence? I'm telling you, uh, I pretty much came really close to shitting my pants that night. It's amazing how small you can get when somebody's shooting at you, isn't it? Whoosh. Well, you know. Back, you revert back to your training. Take cover. You know, my my sergeant had the entire engine block and everything and the police car behind him. I'm getting out on the passenger side, getting ready to take cover, go around to the other side, when all of a sudden there's gunshots being fired over my head. So, yeah, I, swore, I swooped under that police car. Anyway, uh, after everything's said and done, we're down in I, with IAD till 6 a.m. that morning. I go home. Who the hell can go to sleep? I'm due back at work at 6 o'clock that night. He's out on administrative leave, and uh, they they put me in my own unit. I couldn't even ride with my partner that night. Like, everything was fine. I just kind of sat in the park and waited for them to dispatch me or anything to come in that I needed to respond to. I was pretty much in shock and exhausted. I, I went back for about another two and a half years. Work Special Operations Task Force, where I had worked my way through to prior to getting shot. 
And um, one of the mages, um, I, I guess the, the the administration wanted me to stay home, bake cookies, and go back to being a girl because they took me out of a specialized unit that I had earned my way to and put me up in Churchill, you know, Mosby Court, Creighton Court, Gilpin Court, working working the housing projects. One of them where Woodfin actually reportedly had a drug house, put me back in patrol. And the mages' um, rationale for that was when you fall off a horse, you get back on a horse. And how many times, how many times has he been shot? Um, none that I'm aware of. I think he got a nasty paper cut once, Steve. I mean, he was filing a yeah, folder, got that. a nasty paper cut. He got a purple heart for that. He's probably never even been shot at. Well, um, he's got quite a, quite a personal history. I'll leave it at that. Just not, never felt supported by the upper administration, by the white shirts at all. You know, it was an unwritten thing back then. You get shot. You write your ticket anywhere you want to go. Usually you got promoted to detective. You'd paid your dues. The officers, the sergeants, lieutenants, some of the captains, they were, they were all very supportive, glad to see me back. Everything was going great. That was kind of like another shot in the head to me when they did that. And I, I played it out and did, did what I had to do. But what really happened is when another major decided because of staffing shortages that we couldn't use our PTO, to take our college classes, like I couldn't take a couple hours off and get paid for it using my leave time to go to college, my college class, that was the turning point for me. I was doing my pre-law and social work, and I wanted to go to law school and become an attorney and advocate for victims and their rights. I put in my notice. I went to work as a Campus police officer working midnight shifts after I completed my two, had completed my two-year degree in criminal justice. I started going to VCU and got my BSW. I was told that that was a better major if you wanted to go to law school. So, and again, kind of coincides with what I'm all about, which is helping people. I went to work for my attorney that represented me through the workers' comp and everything with the city. And was paralegal investigator, and they had offered to put me through law school if I would stay on as an attorney five years after graduating law school. So I was working for them, going to college part-time, and was going to go to law school. My dad got diagnosed with cancer and initially was not going to have very long to live. I moved to Florida, became a uh, a district manager of investigations for an international corporation in Florida. Dad had a miraculous recovery, went into remission, lived several years after that. I moved back to Richmond. Of course, the law school opportunity was gone. So I started working in social work-related positions, spent about 12 years at Virginia Home for Boys back then, now Home for Boys and Girls. I uh, worked at their emergency shelter, worked at the Y with the uh, battered women's safe house, working the hotline on the weekends, did other residential care with, with juveniles, taught special ed, taught vocational, technical ed, and the criminal justice program. Currently, for about the past 10 years, I work with people with disabilities to protect their rights, help them get employment, and make sure that nobody violates their human rights. 
Um, and that's been very rewarding. I like being a little worker bee. I get to do some investigative work sometimes. You are the busiest person I know because we're connected on Facebook and we're I following know. stuff. It's like, I got to do this. I'm working all weekend. I'm doing this. You would not be happy if you were sitting behind a desk Monday through Friday, eight to five, just filing papers. Probably not unless I was doing investigations or something like that, but I'm kind of a field person. I would love to be able to be somebody who goes out and finds these victims and their families, because I tell everybody I'm very well connected. If I can't do it, I know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. I will get it done. I got a guy. I got a guy who's got a guy. You know, we're all connected this way. I know, <laughs> I know a, guy. a guy. Vinny the chin, Bobby the nose. You know, we, we're going to get this done. So, hey, as we bring this to a close, I, I just want you to finish off, too. You talked about rural Richmond United for law enforcement. I mean, you've been working with victims, but you, you also remain staunchly and unapolog unapologetically pro-law enforcement and advocating for officers' rights and things like that. Give us, a, give us a couple minutes on what you're doing there. What a lot of people don't know is when I got shot initially, the city did not want to cover my medical bills and because they're self-insured. And I had people telling me that. And the uh, Fraternal Order of Police got me an attorney. Luckily, the city decided to do the right thing um, prior to me holding a press conference from the hospital bed. <laughs> That gets their attention, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and I will tell you one thing about getting shot in the head is my my humor is my coping mechanism. So a lot of times I find myself saying, like if somebody's like, oh, don't do that, you'll get in trouble, you know, and I'm like, what the fuck are they going to do, shoot me in the head? And so I get written up. Who gives a shit? My boss, my current boss, would probably tell you that uh, sometimes we butt heads, but at the end of the day, he knows my heart's in the right place. We don't have to agree. At the end of the day, he's the boss, but if I don't agree with him, God knows he's going to hear it. I'm shocked. You're usually, you're kind of withdrawn and shy and retiring. You, <laughs> you up in his face telling him where he went wrong, I am shocked. Steve, you shocked? I didn't think we'd ever get her to come out of her shell today to give it's, us an interview. Wow. It's taken a while. It's taken a while to get you there, Cheryl. <laughs> and I'm glad we did. Anyway, so the city decided to pay to do the right thing. But I went through a lot of that without knowing what my rights were, what they weren't, whatever. 2015, Officer Bill Turner that I worked with when I worked the street, he got shot seriously injured in the line of duty. Prior to that, if people needed anything, I'm, I'm still part of the family. I'll always be part of the family. My friends, my, my connections, my, my work that I do, uh, everything. But offices, retired offices, everybody was contacting me and going, hey, we're supposed to be updated by the deputy chief. We're supposed to be updated by the chief of police, who was uh, Ray Tarasovic at the time. and. Steve Drew was the deputy chief, and they're supposed to be updating us on Turner's condition, what's going on, nothing's happening, um, there's rumor going around that they may try to get out of paying him for this reason, for that reason, so what can you do? I'm like, okay, here's what I can do. I need three or four of y'all to volunteer. We got to do it quick. We put together Richmond United for Law Enforcement, which the acronym is RULE. And the philosophy being, if you want 
the men and women in uniform to follow the rules, you have to too. The white shirts, the administration. It was developed to bring the community and the profession and the Richmond Police Department together to work together toward common goals, primarily public safety. It was to build relationships. As I told you earlier, um, that community support and that community involvement was a critical piece in my healing, but also in kind of getting the city to see the light and do the right thing because they did not want to look bad in the eyes of the community. So we put together a prayer vigil within less... Here we go again, you troublemaker, another prayer vigil. Less than 24 hours. You know, this is like 5.30 at night. I reached out to Ray Tarasovic. I reached out to Drew. Didn't get a response. Said, hey, what's going on? What's going on with Turner? What's his condition? The officers aren't getting any feedback. We want to know. What can we do to help? No response. So up I come with the name of the organization. I get some volunteers on board, reach out to the VCU police chief, get clearance to hold a prayer vigil. Initially, we were going to do it around the hospital. We did it nearby instead, put out a press release. Started notifying everybody, email, phone, you know, that's where my volunteers were helping, social media, um, direct messaging, everything that we were meeting to pray for, for Turner's recovery. Got messages through civilian friends, nurses to his family that, you know, look, your sergeant can't force you to sign anything. I've got attorneys pro bono that will give you advice. I will come in and advocate for you. Do not sign anything. Any officers that get hurt, we provide services, support, support for the family, something as simple as meals, free legal advice. The officers can't say a whole lot to the media, but I certainly can. I've had pretty good working relationships with the previous police chiefs. Um, this current police chief, I, I'm not even convinced he lives in Richmond permanently. I have not even met him. Most of the officers here haven't met him. But I was. Is this the one that came from, where is it, North Carolina or South Carolina? North Carolina, Mecklenburg, North Carolina. Yeah. That's another, that's another podcast. But um, anyway, ironically, we're gonna hold this. Um, we're gonna hold this prayer vigil on that Sunday afternoon. I get a call 7:30 Sunday morning from um, Major Steve Drew at 7:30 in the morning, and he's like, "Oh, Mrs. Nature O'Connell," and I'm like, "Yes, yeah, Steve. What can I do for you?" He's like, "Oh," I said, "I'm kind of busy. I'm planning a prayer vigil, you know." And he's like, "Well, that's what I'm calling you about. Um, we don't think that's a really good idea." And I said. You know what, Steve? I don't give a fuck what you think. I don't work for you anymore. I said, so let me tell you how we're going to roll. I said, this is where we're going to be. If you're there and you're nice, I'll give you the mic for a few minutes, and you'll be recognized. If you're not there, that will be recognized, and I guess you won't need the mic. So, gotta run for now. Hope to see you at two. Ta-ta for now. Ta-ta for now. <laughs> I hate to negotiate with you. <laughs> no, dude, this is how we roll. This is how it's going down. Yeah. yeah. 
what can you do to me? Shoot me in the head. Make it the right side. Matching holes, please. Uh, okay? You survive something like what I've been through, and you get treated the way I was treated, and you see other people get screwed over? No. I, I don't have to be silent anymore. And that bullet that was meant to silence me only made my voice stronger. And on the flip side, if there's a bad cop, and the officers will tell you this, I will gift wrap them and hand them up in a New York minute. So I, I why is it not a Boston minute? Why why did you say New York? You're from Boston. Why is there such thing as a Boston minute? Uh, New York minutes. Uh, uh, Everybody knows what a New York minute. I is. know. I'm just busting your chops. <laughs> when I was 16, I used to skip school. I used to take People's Express and catch a flight over to New York City with a truant officer couldn't catch me, fly back in time for work. Oh, geez. I spent a lot of time in New York. Try doing that post 9-11. That's not going to happen. <laughs> well, hey, Cheryl, we want to end on a really great story. And um, you didn't tell this. You said it in the pre-call and Murph, Murph uh, called it. So Murph, you set it up. So when you were in the hospital, uh, not everybody from administration came to visit. You had a lot of your brothers and sisters that did, right? And some of the public was supportive. But you had one special visitor that might have something to do with the location where you were shot, huh? Some big name. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was just amazed. Uh, my chief was out of town. He didn't even come up to see me in the hospital. But all of a sudden, C.W. Marriott, the Marriott family, came to see me in the hospital. Now, does he live in Richmond? Uh, no. No, he, he actually, C.W. is now deceased. But no, the Marriott's, um, at that time, I think they lived somewhere out in the Midwest. And they flew in to see me, wanted to make sure I was okay. I didn't find this out until many years later. But they voluntarily paid half of my hospital bills, my medical expenses, no everything. Shit. You wow. didn't even tell us that yeah. on the pre-call. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. You're sandbagging us, girl. You're sandbagging us. There's just so much to tell. Well, and now this, but it doesn't stop there, does it? There's still more to this story. But wait, there's more. There, There is. I had a very close friend who had to um, get some surgery, and she had to get it at a hospital in D.C. And I had told her, I said, well, you know, I'm not just going to drive up there, wait for you to get your surgery done, see if they release you or whatever. Why don't we go up the day before? We'll have a good dinner. You can't eat past midnight or have anything to drink, and I'll get a hotel room close by. You know, don't want to drive in D.C. any more than you have to. So anyway, I made reservations at the Marriott on Pennsylvania Avenue, and we get there to check in. You know, I'd already given them the credit card and everything, and we check in, and it's like, oh, no, Miss Nietzsche, um, you know, everything is is on the house, courtesy of Mr. Marriott and his family. They put us in the presidential suite. There was a gift basket, a bottle of champagne, everything. Uh, they would not allow us to pay for anything. Fantastic. God, what a story. I'm, I'm a big Hilton guy, but after this story, I believe I'm going to become a Marriott guy. They treated me, they treated me like family. I am sure if I needed anything and had picked up that phone, but that's not who I am, to be honest with you. 
I was very grateful for that gesture, but it also made me kind of uncomfortable, if you know what I mean. I was doing my job. I got paid. Yeah, but that's what most people like you say. They go, I'm not, I just was doing my job. I'm uncomfortable by this. I'm doing this. And you know what? That is the difference between that and the people who are just glory seekers that go out and they just want the attention. They want it all to be about me, 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 me. You know, um, it's the humble ones like you who say, I'm just doing my job. The, the, that's people don't realize those are the real heroes. The real heroes aren't the one who go plaster themselves all over social media and say, look what I did. The real heroes are folks like you who are uncomfortable because somebody's trying to do something nice for them. And you're going, I was only doing my job. And it's been, you know, your story has just been so motivational. and It kind of ties in with some others we've had here recently that will be coming up in future episodes. Um, just <laughs> that will to live is so strong and you have to demonstrate that. You have to have, you know, like uh, Alex Collins was telling us, he set little goals, little milestones that kept him motivated because he wanted to achieve this and he wanted to achieve the next step and the next step. And and there's one that I don't want to uh, run the story, you know, because it's such a motivating story with uh, Claudia uh, Apollinar that was shot out in California, one of the deputy sheriffs that was shot at the train station last year. And just hearing her story, I've never met this woman, and I am so damn proud of her. I'm so proud of you. You're continuing to do what you felt the need to do early on in life, and that's to help other people. And you didn't let this traumatic event that would sideline most people, if not kill them, you didn't let that get in your way. You're still moving forward. You're doing what you think is right. And normally, Morgan is the one that says he salutes you. I'm taking my hat off to you. So damn proud of what you're doing, what you've done and what you're doing now, Cheryl. It's just been an honor to have you here on the show. So God bless you. Thank you very much. We pray for you to continue. I will tell you the other line we learned, and it came from episode 25, part one, Rick Massa and the LAPD North Hollywood Bank shootout. He said it so eloquently. You know what he said? He said, willpower defeats firepower. And that's exactly what this was. Your willpower defeated the firepower. That bullet was meant to silence you and it didn't. And if anybody hasn't figured it out by now, there is no stopping Cheryl. So Cheryl, this is us saluting you again. Job well done. And thank you for continuing to fight the fight there in Richmond for the officers. But more importantly, I'll tell you what I think officers would be behind this too. Your work that you're doing for the victims and what you want to do, the victims are too often forgotten. And we're glad you're doing your part to make sure that they're never forgotten. In closing, I would like to tell you my theme song. And it's how I live my life. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We're, we're solid members of Team Cheryl now. Absolutely, man. Team Cheryl. Well, hey, look, you've done a great job. Hang on, everybody. Uh, we're going to close this out, but Cheryl, it's great. We, I'm going to have to get down that way. I've got some stuff to do on some cold cases. It'll get me down that way. So we'll make sure uh, you know we get together and, and have dinner. And I just want to see you chew somebody's ass out in that Boston accent. I just got to hear that. So we're going to have to go someplace where somebody does something. I'm going to say, hey, uh, talk to my girl Cheryl over here. She's going to handle yeah, this shit. Yeah. Okay, everybody, let's stay tuned for the debrief. Again, now that you guys know, she's not from Virginia. <laughs> she's not even from Northern Virginia. <laughs> no, she's a little bit farther north than there. But look, Cheryl, what an amazing story. Again, you know, you just think about it. Shot through the jaw through her temporomandibular joint, you know, the TMJ, you know, with a 350, I mean, well, it was a 38 round. Fortunately, the guy didn't have a 357 load, but I mean, but just the, you know, and the other thing too is 
you feel bad too because the guy should have been charged with attempted capital murder. Instead, it was malicious wounding, and I get it that uh, you know he's they've got him on the other homicides. But it goes back to I'm still so concerned about what we're doing with this. It's almost like catch and release in prison. It's like you've got people that are going away that have killed people. I mean, this guy killed three people, wounded two police officers in vicious ways. And yet he still gets a parole hearing. I mean, right. why do you get, why do you give somebody a parole hearing who is that violent and that dangerous? I get it. It's geriatric parole. What? I'm sorry. No, sorry. There are some people who should never ever see freedom again, and this is one of those guys. Absolutely. Ask ask his girlfriend's family if they think he should get out. You know, he killed her just because he was mad about something. He's mad at somebody else. He's mad at the police. Mad at the world. You know, but the, the worst part about this is, uh, and I think we touched on this a little bit about the Virginia Parole Board, putting Cheryl in this position on a regular basis to have to come in and explain her entire ordeal again, the trauma. She has to relive that trauma every time she goes before the parole board to try to keep this piece of shit in jail where he belongs. You know, he killed three people. It, and none of them were police officers. One of them was his best friend. Holy cow. I'd hate to be friends with that guy. Dude, yeah, man, it's any any small slight and this guy's whacking you, you know, but it's just, again, this is one of those discussions. I think we'll have to do a random surprise episode on this for our Patreon. If you guys want to hear it, I think what we ought to do is really talk about what are some of the key issues with parole? Because, you know, what I, I'm, here's a word I want to change. Everybody talks about reform. I want to talk about improvement. There's criminal justice improvement. There's improvements we can make in the court. There's improvements we can make in policing. We have improved policing over time. You know what we used to do with mentally ill people 25, 30 years ago? It's nothing like what we do with them now and the treatment they get and the services they get, you know, the ways ways you attack, even things like prostitution. No longer is the sex worker, is the person providing the services, the suspect. They're actually, many times they're the victim. They're being trafficked by other people. So, I mean, we have come, we have improved our way of looking at things. So I think we need improvement. Rather, reform sounds like, well, let's, we've got to reform this because it's bad. No, guys, we still got the best justice system in the entire Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you don't believe it, go to a third world country and just stick around for a while. You'll be anxious to get back to the, you know, this, this terrible United States that you like to complain about so much. But I mean, you know what we're taking away from Cheryl's story here? She is yeah, a trooper. Right. She's a freaking hero. She still So you said up. trooper. Trooper. You had so identified trooper with being heroic and fierce and the warrior mindset. Thank you, Steve. I will wash my mouth out with lie after we finish this recording. I promise. <laughs> but he's, I mean, Cheryl, you're a hero lady in our eyes, you know, uh, proud to call you a colleague, a sister and a friend. So thank you very much for being on the show. And thank you once again for reliving your story. I mean, I know I, I would certainly think that's got to be a traumatic experience, but you know, these people we bring on, they don't hesitate. They lay it all out there. And that's the cool thing for about Game of Crimes is our listeners hear from the people who actually endured and went through the investigations and the crimes committed against them. It's not us telling their story. You hear it from the horse's mouth. And it's not us telling a story about what's something we have no connection to. When we bring these people on, we have a connection to them either because we know them directly or we know somebody who knows them directly. I mean, we're all separated by, you know, one degree of separation at the max two degrees on a lot of this stuff. So that's what makes it great. But you know what else makes it great, Murph? What's that? When people head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us five stars, especially oh, yeah. for episodes like this. Oh, hey, yeah. The other thing, too, I wanted to say, and thank you guys for the the support on Claudia's episode. 
I have banished the company that we were trying to use, the new platform we were trying to use. The audio sucked on that. I just tell you that right up front. Apologize for that. It will never, ever happen again. And that's why I want you to give us five stars because we will readily come on and admit our faults. I will tell you mm-hmm. everything that's wrong with Steve and why he needs to correct it. If Which there's is a very needed, short conversation. Well, there's some other things that are very short too, but we will easy, not mention easy. those. Easy. You're talking about anyway, my hair, right? Yeah. <laughs> Depends on where it's at. Hey, um, oh. Ooh. So let's go to head on over to Apple Podcasts, hit those five stars, give us that rating. Uh, you know, we're, we're working hard every week to earn that by bringing you the stories you, I guarantee you, you did not get anywhere else. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more information about the shows. When we have pictures and stuff, that's where we put it for the episodes. We're constantly updating it. Make sure you follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. PayPal, just use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever it makes it easier. But again, you got to head on over to Patreon. We're going to have so much fun on December 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern in the year of our Lord, 2021. Kyrie, Domine, Domineus Requiem. Don't you guys be listening to this three months from now and going, hey, where's the live stream? We clearly <laughs> said it. It's December 22nd, 2021. And we'll probably do this again. You know, we'll, we'll have some stuff like this. We want you guys to see the kind of fun we do, but the kind of preparation we do. But we're going to have fun. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have so much content coming out over there. We've got our Q&A from just this last, uh, for this month. We just released on the 10th. Some really good questions. We... We have got some people who, who, and really, you know, you think, can you, you know, don't you get the same questions each time? No, I'm telling you, each time somebody's got a different take, you know, what about this? You got to head on over to do that. And just make sure that you, uh, you know, sign up for it because there's no other way to hear the extra special stuff we do for you unless you go to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Right, Murph? There you go. There you go. Come and join us, and, and we're going to live stream on Facebook. So, you know, come on over there, December 22nd, 8 p.m. Eastern time. That's 7%, 7, 7%, 7, 7, 7, 7% <laughs> Central, 6% Mountain, 5%. Uh, California, because California's always got weak stuff out there. And if you, but if you want, if you want the, if you want the full boat, if you want the full beverage, the you know seven percent, eight percent ABV. Woo-hoo. That's eight eight p.m. Uh, Eastern on December twenty second, twenty twenty one. We will be doing a live stream at facebook.com slash Game of Crimes podcast. You guys don't, you just go over to the page. You don't even have to. We hope you like it. We hope to join Patreon, but it's free to watch, and we'll yep. be having fun. Couple surprises for you. So. Until then, right, Murph? You getting yes, ready sir. for Christmas, right? We're getting uh, ready. This is absolutely. our Christmas gift to everybody. All right. So thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes. 